civilization of Egypt and of Africa in general is the most written about and the least understood of all known subjects. This is not an accident or an error in misunderstanding the available information. Except for Egypt, African people have been written out of the respectable commentary of history. Europeans have claimed the non-African creation of Egypt in order to downgrade the position of African people in world history. They have laid the foundation of what they call Western civilization on a structure that the Western mind did not create. In doing so, they have used no logic. Egypt, a Nile Valley civilization, was already old before Europe was born. Nile Valley civilization also existed before the Western Asian civilization of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. This fact was acknowledged for years by the European academic hypocrites who thought they had gotten away with claiming Egypt as a European or at least Asian creation. The archaeological research of Europeans disproved their claim. They cannot find a single artifact in Western Asia or in mainland Asia that was older than the artifacts of Nile Valley civilization or Africa in general. This revelation created a new dilemma for the European claimers of Egypt. They were saying, in effect, figuratively speaking, a child gave birth to himself, then he created his own mother. Before the existence of Greek sphinxes and Greek culture, Africans in the Nile Valley developed the archetypes of civilized thought which have influenced humanity for over 5,000 years. Despite numerous attempts to suppress the historical accomplishments of these ancient Africans, the truth may now be told. which were accepted as gospel, but have faded into oblivion in the light of intelligent thought. At one time, men believed that the world was flat and that the planets and stars all revolved around the earth. Some of the most damaging myths were those created in order to perpetuate the myth of the inherent inferiority of African people, so-called Negroes. This particular myth was created in the early 15th century in order to justify the enslavement of Africans who had been kidnapped by Portuguese sailors and presented as gifts to the Pope. The word Negro was changed from an adjective to a noun in order to justify a new race of people who were deemed less than human. I'm Anthony Browder, author of Exploding the Myths, Volume 1, Now Valley Contributions to Civilization. I discussed the significance of names in my first publication, From the Browder File, 22 Essays on the African-American Experience, in an essay entitled, The Creation of the Negro. Names are important to all human beings because they link them to a specific landmass, a distinct language, history, culture, philosophy, and concept of God. For example, Europeans come from the continent of Europe. 
Italians come from a country in Europe called Italy. They speak Italian and they revere their cultural history. Similarly, Asians come from the continent of Asia. Chinese come from an Asian country called China. They speak Chinese dialects and they have recorded vivid accounts of their history. People who record their history and myths take pride in the accomplishments of their ancestors. People who have their history and myths written for them are not as fortunate, particularly if they have been written out of their own history. Such is the case concerning the race of people who have erroneously been called Negroes, colored, and black. Think of the power of that myth. If one of the primary virtues of a name is to orient people to a homeland, where is there a place called Negro land, or colored land, or black land? Who are these people, and what is their story? Before the names were changed, they were called Africans, and they were the first inhabitants on this planet. Anthropologists agree that the first humans who walked the earth lived in Northeast Africa. Yes, there really was an Adam and Eve, and they lived about 150,000 years ago in a symbolic Garden of Eden, which is now called Kenya. These Africans have the oldest genetic roots, and they were the foreparents of every person in the world. In reality, there is only one race, the human race, which had its beginnings in Africa. Contemporary anthropologists, geneticists, and archaeologists have denounced the myths fabricated by scientists of the 19th century who were motivated by racism when they attempted to downgrade the historical significance of African people. The attacks have been vicious, and old thought patterns are sometimes difficult to change. For example, regarding people of African descent, the 1884 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica stated that the Negro occupies the lowest position in the evolutionary scale, thus affording the best material for the comparative study of the highest anthropoids and the human species. The Encyclopedia Britannica went on to state that at the onset of puberty, the cranial sutures of the Negro close much earlier than in other races. This accounts for their arrested mental development. The prominent British historian Arnold Toynbee perpetuated this myth in his 1933 publication, A Study of History. Let's see what Toynbee said. Toynbee stated, when we classify mankind by color, the only one of the primary races which has not made a creative contribution to any of our 21 civilizations is the black race. So much for an unbiased scholarly opinion. The venerable historian, Dr. John Henry Clark, informs us that there has been a deliberate destruction of African culture and the records relating to that culture. This destruction started with the first invaders of Africa. It continued through the period of slavery and the colonial system. It continues today on a much more higher and dangerous level. There are now attempts on the highest academic level to divide African history and culture within Africa in such a manner that the best of it can be claimed for Europeans or at the very least Asians. The decision to place Egypt in the Middle East in the 20th century represents nothing more than an attempt to remove Egypt from Africa and the Nile Valley. If Egypt is in the Middle East, then where is the Middle West? Where is the Middle North 
and the Middle South. Even our perceptions of the geographical landmass of the Earth have been distorted. The map of the world that we are most familiar with, the Mercator map, was created by a German cartographer in 1569. The map was designed for European navigators and it places Europe in the center of their world. It also seriously distorts and misrepresents the true shapes and proportions of the land masses of the world in favor of Europe. The Mercator map shows the Northern Hemisphere, which is 18.9 million square miles, to be more than two-thirds of the land mass. It compresses the Southern Hemisphere, 38.6 million square miles, into the remaining one-third. The Peters projection map, created in 1974, more accurately represents all land masses according to their relative size. While it does exhibit shape distortion of land areas, it is considered a small trade-off because all land masses are proportionally represented. The idea of orienting oneself to the north was an arbitrary decision made by European map makers who lived in the northern hemisphere. But the notion of a northerly orientation has not always prevailed among people in the world. Thousands of years ago, Africans in the Nile Valley established migratory patterns which followed the northerly flow of the Nile River. At 4,160 miles in length, the Nile is the longest river in the world. It consists of two tributaries, the White Nile, which originates near Uganda and Zaire, and the Blue Nile, which flows from the highlands in Ethiopia. These two rivers meet in Sudan at the city of Khartoum, where they continue to flow as one single body of water into the Mediterranean Sea. As Africans migrated northward down the Nile, establishing settlements along the riverbank, they continually oriented themselves to their homelands in the south, which they call Ta-Netcher, or the land of God. Settlements were eventually established in the extreme north, in a region that the inhabitants called Kemet. Today, we call that country Egypt. The people of Kemet divided the land into two regions, Upper Kemet in the south and Lower Kemet in the north. Because they oriented themselves to the land of their ancestors and the flow of the Nile, the south was considered the top and the north the bottom. Even today, the southern region of the land is still referred to as Upper Egypt and the northern region, Lower Egypt. The world as we know it has literally been turned upside down. evidence indicates that the people of ancient Kemet were indigenous Africans who called their land Kemet, a word which means the country of the blacks or the land of the blacks and not the black soil as some have suggested. The people of ancient Kemet migrated out of a region now called Nubia which extends from southern Egypt into the Sudan. The culture of the Nubians had a profound influence on their cousins in the north in Kemet. 
Discoveries were made in Nubia around 1964, which substantiated the Nubian origins of Kemet. At the site of the ancient city of Taseti, archaeologists found a royal burial ground and uncovered artifacts which proved the existence of Nubian kingdoms that were developed 200 years before the first kingdoms of Kemet. One of the most interesting items discovered was an incense burner which contained images that were later to become integral elements associated with royalty in Kemet. They were the serek, a type of grooved palace facade, an image of the falcon god Heru, who was a central figure in the African Trinity, and reproductions of a king wearing a pharaonic beard and a crown, which was later to symbolize Upper Kemet. This king is portrayed sailing in a boat towards the royal palace. The first recorded king of ancient Kemet was a man named Narma. He was also called Aha or Menes. Narma was responsible for uniting the two lands of Upper and Lower Kemet into one nation. Narma continued the cultural traditions which had been established previously in the kingdom of Taseti in Nubia. The founding father of Kemet established his kingdom around 3,150 years before the common era, or about 5,140 years ago. In his day, Narma was considered the most powerful man on earth. Have you ever wondered what was the significance of the two lions which can be seen flanking the entrances to numerous buildings and bridges all over the world? The twin lions represent just one aspect of numerous examples of Nile Valley civilizations which have been integrated into Western civilization without the acknowledgement of their African origins. The entrance to many temples in ancient Kemet was flanked by a lion on the left, which represented yesterday, and a lion on the right, which symbolized tomorrow. Both lions were considered the keepers who opened and shut the gate to the worlds of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The people of Kemet studied the movements of the stars, planets, and the sun, and they developed the first calendar of 365.24 days been described as the only intelligent calendar that has ever existed in human history. This calendar was being used as late as 4,236 years before the Common Era, or over 6,000 years ago. The people of Kemet developed astronomical instruments to survey the stars and could determine the exact position of these heavenly bodies in the sky at any point in time. They were the first to divide the day into 24 hours, the hour into 60 minutes, and the minute into 60 seconds. The shadow clock was designed to measure the 12 hours of daylight. The clepsydra was created to measure the 12 hours of the night. The length of the shadow of the Tekken was measured to determine the precise moment of the equinox and solstice. Even the word hour is derived from the word Horus, 
which is the Greek name for the comedic falcon god called Hedu, who was associated with the sun. Incidentally, the time of the day, the hour, is determined by the position of the earth relative to Hedu, the comedic symbol for the sun. With the development of astronomy, the heavens were mapped and the names were assigned to the various stars and planets. Specific activities were associated with the appearance of certain stars and constellations. Now here's a drawing of an ancient Nile Valley zodiac. It identifies numerous concepts that most of us are familiar with. The outer circle of figures represents the 36 Neturu. Each one symbolizes the 10-day weeks of the comedic year. The 12 figures outside of the circle represent the 12 months of the year and their arms the tw 24 hours of the day. The stars whose appearances coincided with the annual flooding of the Nile River were later called Aquarius. The stars that appeared during the planting season when the earth was being plowed by the ox or bull were called Taurus. The stars that appeared when the length of the day and night were equal were called Libra, the balance. The retrograding motion of the stars which mirrored the movement of the sun as it approached the tropic were called Cancer because their backwards motion was like that of the crab. The 12 astrological signs were identified and were later called the horoscope or the view of Horus, Heru. Various star maps of numerous constellations were developed in the Nile Valley thousands of years ago. This reproduction of a zodiac is from an observatory in the temple of Dendera. The original zodiac was dynamited from the ceiling of this temple by Napoleon's troops in 1799. It currently is on display in the Louvre Museum in Paris. The ancient astronomers of Kemet developed a profound understanding of the universe from their study of the celestial bodies. They soon came to realize that all the activities on Earth were influenced by some corresponding activity in the sky. The universe was viewed as the omnipotent expression of a supreme being which manifested itself within all the principles that created the universe and maintained balance and harmony. Individual aspects of the one supreme creator were called nature, a term which meant the principles or manifestations of the one source of creation. Each nature was represented by a symbol which designated specific attributes. It is from the word nature that we have derived the word nature or the various forces of God. Many of the Neturu were represented by animals because of the specific attributes associated with that being. For example, the falcon is a symbol for the sun and light because like the sun, it soars in the highest regions of the sky where light abounds. The Neturu is called Heru and his right eye represents the sun and the sun's ability, like that of God, to see all things at all times. The eye is also the organ which perceives light 
and represents the process of spiritual awareness. The eye of the falcon and other birds of prey contain over one billion vision cells. The human eye, on the other hand, contains a mere 130 million vision cells. The scarab beetle symbolizes the resurrection and immortality of God as represented by the sun. It lays its eggs in a ball of dung. The heat of the sun hatches the egg and a winged scarab emerges. This activity represents the process of spiritual rebirth. The people of the Nile were the first human beings to express a profound belief in religious principles and a doctrine of everlasting life. They developed a form of writing called Medu Netra, which means the writings or the word of God. We now call this writing form hieroglyphics. As early as 4,500 BCE, they wrote beautiful prayers and litanies on papyrus scrolls. And they also carved them on the walls of their temples and tombs. These collected writings were called Pet M. Heru, which means coming forth by day. And it represents the process by which the soul of the deceased is resurrected. Because of the fact that many of these writings were found in tombs, they were mistakenly referred to as the Book of the Dead by European scholars. Included among these writings were the earliest recorded concepts of the creation of the world through the spoken word, God molding man from clay, the baptism of the king, moral concepts of good and evil, heaven and hell, and God seated on the throne of judgment. Of particular significance is the story of the world's first trinity, which was written in the Nile Valley over 6,000 years ago. The trinity consists of Asar, his wife Aset, and their son Hedu. According to one condensed version of this story, Asar, the benevolent king, is murdered by his brother Set. Aset, the virgin, is later informed by a messenger that she will be impregnated by the spirit of her deceased husband. Nine months later, Aset gives birth to her son named Heru. As an adult, Heru battles his uncle Set and avenges the murder of his father. Heru ascends to the throne of his father and becomes the ruler of earth. Asar is later resurrected from the grave and became the Lord of Judgment for all of the deceased. The significance of this story and Asar's role as the Lord of Judgment can be seen in a famous tomb scene entitled The Weighing of the Soul. In it, the soul of the deceased stands before two images of Ma'at, the nature who represents the principles of truth justice, harmony, balance, reciprocity, and order. The feather in the hand of the deceased, like those in the headband of Ma'at, represents the divine attributes of Ma'at. In the next scene, the soul of the deceased is weighed opposite the feather of Ma'at on the scales of the balance. If the soul is symbolically as light as a feather. It means that he has lived a righteous life in accordance to the principles of Ma'at. The Netra Jehudi records the result of a weighing 
in the book of judgment. And Asar, who is seated on the throne of judgment, oversees all of these activities and makes the final determination as to whether the soul of that person goes to heaven or hell. Over the centuries, the image of Ma'at evolved, but the activities associated with her remained constant. Here we see Ma'at portrayed as the winged netcher. And here we see her European counterpart, a 15th century painting of the Archangel Michael, who weighs the soul of man on the scale of Ma'at as the forces of evil tug on the opposite side of the balance. Another important symbol from the Nile Valley, which represents their profound belief in spirituality, is the statue that we currently refer to by its Greek name, the Sphinx. The comedic word for this statue is Ha'em Aket, which means Heru on the horizon. It is the personification of Heru, the son of Asar, the resurrected Netcher, and it is also one of the oldest sculptures in the world. Originally carved out of one solid block of stone, this 240-foot-long statue has the body of a reclining lion and a human face which is almost 14 feet wide. It is 66 feet high and represents a perfect blend of art and architecture, mystery and magnificence. It aesthetically integrates the essence of man and animal in such a way that it expresses the divine relationship between the two. The head represents a divine intelligence and the lion's body symbolizes the animal nature which exists in man. The people of Kemet believe that it was only through the refinement of the mind, the development of one's intellect, that man is capable of controlling the beast within. Haramakit is regarded as one of the finest sculptures ever created to represent the spiritual evolution of man. The Greek interpretation of Haramakit, the Sphinx, represents a totally different concept. Sphinx is a Greek word which means the strangler. In Greek mythology, the Sphinx is a winged monster with a lion's body and the head and breast of a woman. She posed the question to all who passed her on the road which led to the city of Thebes in Greece. This question became known as the riddle of the Sphinx and all who could not answer it were strangled by this monster. When the riddle was successfully answered by Oedipus, the Sphinx promptly committed suicide by jumping off of a cliff. To the Greeks, the Sphinx was a terror. To the people of Kemet, Haramakad was a metaphor for spiritual enlightenment. This one example represents the extent to which Nile Valley concepts have been plagiarized and distorted by others. The inhabitants of the Nile Valley were responsible for designing and constructing the world's first architectural structures. The Step Pyramid of Saqqara is the oldest building on Earth. It was built for King Zoser around 2630 BCE. It rises to a height of 197 feet in a series of six box-like steps. The Step Pyramid is part of an elaborate complex at Saqqara, which consisted of temples, colonnaded halls, and an enclosure wall. The structural designs employed at Saqqara 
set the architectural standard for Kemet and the world for the next 4,600 years. The architect responsible for the design of the Step Pyramid was a man named Imhotep. Imhotep was recorded in history as the world's first multi-genius. He is a prime minister to Zoser. He was a poet, a philosopher, a physician. He is considered to be the author of the world's oldest medical treatise ever written. It is a document that is now called the Edwin Smith Medical Papyrus. This book describes 48 different injuries to the head, to the face, to the neck, and the spinal column. It is held in high regard by members of the International College of Surgeons in Chicago, and it is noted for its accuracy and high scientific standard. The architects and engineers of the Nile Valley were responsible for creating some of the most memorable structures on Earth. The Great Pyramid of Giza is the first and only remaining wonder of the original seven wonders of the world. This magnificent structure stands as tall as a 45-story building and is comprised of nearly two and one-half million stone blocks which weigh an average of two and one-half tons each. This one building is comprised of enough stone to make 30 Empire State Buildings. The temple complex of Ipedisut, now called Karnak, was one of the greatest accomplishments ever achieved in Kemet. It is comprised of numerous temples, one of which contains the largest colonnaded hall ever constructed. This great hall consists of 136 columns, which stand in 16 rows. The tallest columns are 69 feet high and are large enough to accommodate a group of 100 men standing on its apex. This one room has enough floor space to equal the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, and the entire complex is large enough to accommodate all of the churches built in London since the birth of Jesus to Christ. The oldest rendering of a boat was also found in Kemet and was said to have been painted over 5,000 years ago. This 132-foot ship is one of the oldest boats ever discovered. It was with vessels such as this that the king Ka Kepra Rin Senrosret I crossed the Mediterranean Sea and founded the city of Athens in Greece around 1897 BCE. 1,000 years later, Africans successfully circumnavigated Africa and produced accurate maps of the continent. Nile Valley civilization is noted for a number of historical firsts, including writing, law, architecture, religion, and Madison, to name a few. But in 1972, the Cairo Museum showcased an object entitled The Glider of Saqqara, an ancient model of aeronautical engineering. It was described as a model of a monoplane with negative dihedral angled wings not unlike those of the modern Hercules transport aircraft. The belief that ancient Kemet was colonized and ruled by indigenous Africans 
was a view commonly held by Greek travelers to Egypt thousands of years ago. According to John G. Jackson, author of Introduction to African Civilizations, he stated, it may be of interest to the reader to know that the ancient Egyptians did not call themselves Egyptians. The name was invented by the Greeks. The first Greek visitors to Egypt in the 7th century BC were greatly impressed by the Temple of Ptah at Memphis. They regarded it as the grandest structure in the Nile Valley, and they afterward referred to this ancient land as he ka Ptah, the land of the Temple of Ptah. In the Greek language, Hikapatah becomes Aegyptos, and under the Roman rule, the name was Latinized into Aegyptus, from which we get the name Egypt. The Greeks were also responsible for a multitude of etymological atrocities. They changed the name of Asar to Osiris, Aset to Isis, and Heru to Horus. This Nile Valley family was not only the prototype of the Holy Trinity, but Aset and Heru also represent the first images of the Madonna and Child. The Greeks worshipped Isis and Horus, and the Romans later knew them as the Black Madonna and Child. As the centuries passed, references to their black skin passed as they began to be portrayed as Caucasian. The Greeks also changed the names of the builders of the three main pyramids at Giza. They called Khufu Cheops, his son Khafre was called Chephren, and his son Menkare was called Mycernius. The early kings of Kemet never called themselves Pharaoh. That word was introduced into the language by foreigners during the New Kingdom almost 2,000 years after Narmer unified the two lands of ancient Kemet. Homer, the first Greek author of note, wrote in the Iliad that Zeus and all of the gods of Greece traveled to the Nile Valley to dine with the faultless men of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is also a word of Greek origin. It comes from the words ethos, which means burnt, and ops, which means face. Ethos and ops becomes Ethiopian, a descriptive adjective which literally means burnt face and describes the skin color of the people that the Greeks found in the Nile Valley. Herodotus, the Greek father of history, described the Egyptians as black skin with woolly hair. Herodotus also declared that almost all of the names of the gods came into Greece from Egypt. In the mid-1790s, a Frenchman named Count Constantine de Valny published a book entitled The Ruins of Empires, which chronicled his travels to Egypt between 1783 and 1785. Valny's book became an instant bestseller in France and was soon translated into English. Shortly thereafter, an American edition appeared for sale in the United States. But since Africans were still being enslaved in America at that time, the publishers decided to delete segments of the text that might be considered offensive to European Americans. 
Sentences were deleted from pages 15, 16, and 17 in the original text, including a statement which described the people of Kemet. There are a people now forgotten who discovered, while others were yet barbarians, the elements of the arts and sciences, a race of men now ejected from society for their sable skin and fizzied hair, founded on the study of the laws of nature, those civil and religious systems which still govern the universe. Vaughn later discovered this glaring omission and insisted that his book be republished in its entirety. A century later, the eminent African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois provided an explanation of Europeans' inability to accept the fact that the people of the Nile Valley were African. Du Bois stated that this reasoning, or lack of reasoning, was due to the fact that the rise and support of capitalism called for a rationalization based upon degrading and discrediting the Negroid peoples. It is especially significant that the science of Egyptology arose and flourished at the very time that the Cotton Kingdom reached its greatest power on the foundation of American Negro slavery. In 1916, America's foremost Egyptologist, James Henry Breasted of the University of Chicago, wrote a high school textbook entitled Ancient Times. And in this book, Breasted wrote about the marvelous accomplishments of the ancient Egyptians and described them as brown-skinned men with the dark hair. The University of Chicago was established in 1890 with an endowment of $35 million from John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller Chapel was named in his honor. Ancient Times was a bedtime favorite which was frequently read to the children in the Rockefeller household. In 1919, Rockefeller's son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., offered Breasted $1.5 million to establish the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. This institute is now considered one of the foremost Egyptological centers in the world. However, it appears that Rockefeller had strings attached to his generous offerings and that Breasted was willing to be manipulated. Rockefeller's influence on the scholarship of Breasted was evident in the revised edition of Ancient Times, which was published in 1935. In this new edition, Breasted commented that the history of civilization preceding the Greeks and the Romans had been entirely rewritten. Breasted stated, we now realize how many more things the men of the Nile could make than the men of Europe who were still living in the Stone Age towns at the very time the Egyptian tomb chapels were built. The tone of Breasted's revised edition of Ancient Times took a dramatic shift in the fifth chapter as he began to discuss the quarter of the globe where civilization grew up and developed. Breasted referred to this region as the Great Northwest Quadrant and described its inhabitants as members of a race of white men who have been well called the great white race. The men of this race created the civilization which we have inherited. Regarding the indigenous Africans, Breasted stated, these people occupy an important place in the modern world, 
but they played no part in the rise of civilization. Breasted also gave the following description of an illustration which he referred to as the earliest known representation of Negro life. In it, we see a group of defeated Negro soldiers fleeing the wrath of the Egyptian king. This relief was found in a temple of Ramesses II dating back to the 13th century BCE. Breasted failed to show his readers images of a Negroid Ramesses II. On the basis of this scholarship and in concert with the continued financial backing of Rockefeller, Breasted's research went unchallenged and other highly respected publications perpetuated the myth of the dark-skinned whites. Let's look at World Book Encyclopedia. In the 1976 edition of the World Book Encyclopedia, the Egyptians are described as black-haired, dark-skinned peoples who belong to the Mediterranean race of the Caucasoid stock. The views of Breasted at the Oriental Institute were also shared by his counterpart, George Reisner, the curator of Egyptian antiquities at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Reisner was a tenured professor of Egyptology at Harvard University and was responsible for leading some of the first excavations in Nubia in 1909. Reisner claimed that Nubia was originally ruled by white Libyan kings and that the black dynasties were but an extension of them. Many of the views of Reisner and Breasted are now being challenged by experts at the same institutions with which they were affiliated. Timothy Kendall, associate curator of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, recently described Reisner as a product of his times who didn't understand that he was digging up an independent African kingdom as he moved up the Nile into Nubia. Bruce Williams, an archeological specialist of Nubian culture at the Oriental Institute, notes that early archeological expeditions were financed by turn of the century big businessmen who endowed museums and for whom a belief in the white man's superiority was virtually a religion. There are now prominent Egyptologists of African descent who are rewriting the history of the Nile Valley Two of the most well-read are Dr. Joseph ben Yakinen, author of numerous works, including Black Man of the Nile and His Family, and Africa, Mother of Western Civilization. And another brilliant scholar is the late Senegalese multidisciplinarian, Sheikh Anta Diop. In addition to earning a remarkable reputation in Egyptology, Diop was a nuclear physicist, a linguist, and a politician. Two of his most memorable publications are African Origins of Civilization, Myth or Reality, and Civilization or Barbarism. Regarding the seriousness of the struggle to rescue and reconstruct African history, Diop stated, for us to return to Egypt in every domain is the necessary condition to reconcile African civilization with history. Egypt will play the same role in the rethinking and renewing of African culture that ancient Greece and Rome plays in the culture of the West.
One of the most significant works ever produced on the historical and philosophical contributions of ancient Kemet was a book entitled Stolen Legacy, written by George Granville Mona James. George G.M. James, as he was called, was a brilliant scholar who was fluent in Greek and Latin. He also held degrees and teaching certificates in theology, mathematics, logic, philosophy, and social science. James was a professor at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff when he wrote Stolen Legacy in 1954. He died in the spring of that same year under circumstances which can best be described as questionable. To say that Stolen Legacy was a controversial book would be an understatement. In his text, Professor James asserted that the Greeks had stolen and plagiarized the philosophical, scientific, and religious knowledge which had originated in ancient Kemet. James provided evidence to show that after Alexander of Macedonia led the Greek invasion of Egypt in 332 BCE, they assumed total ownership over the land and all of its possessions. And in many instances, the Greeks began to forsake their old traditions for those of the ancient Egyptians. For example, after Egypt had been conquered by the Greeks, Alexander immediately began worshiping the Egyptian god Amun. After his death in 323 BCE, Alexander's body was returned to Egypt for burial, and in 300 BCE, civil coins were minted which portrayed Alexander as the son of Amun. Alexander's successor to the throne of Egypt was Ptolemy I, one of his generals. Ptolemy was devoted to the idea of establishing a center of learning in Egypt, and he subsequently founded the city of Alexandria, Egypt, on the Mediterranean coast for that exact purpose. The libraries of the ancient Egyptian temples were ransacked, and numerous volumes were confiscated and deposited in the library of the newly formed University of Alexandria. The famed Library of Alexandria attracted students from Greece who were free to study from the transcribed pages of thousands of Egyptian documents. So vast was this library that it was said to contain a copy of every scroll known to man, and in less than 100 years, the library had amassed a collection of over 700,000 books. The Greeks continued to benefit intellectually from their conquest of Egypt for almost 300 years, or until they were conquered by the Roman army. After the death of Queen Cleopatra VII in 30 BCE, the Emperor Augustus Caesar claimed Egypt as a province for the Roman Empire. And like the Greeks before them, the Romans received numerous benefits from their conquest of Egypt. The development of Greco-Roman architecture, which has so influenced modern architecture, can be traced directly to the architectural styles of ancient Kemet. The Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian columns are but variations of a theme which were developed in the Nile Valley centuries ago. Even the gods of Greco-Roman mythology can be traced directly to ancient Kemet. Amon, the king of the Neturu in Kemet, became Zeus to the Greeks and Jupiter to the Romans. Jehudi, also known as Toth to the Greeks, was later renamed Hermes by them, and the Romans later knew him as Mercury. Even during this transition, he retained his title of messenger of the gods. In other instances, Neith, the comedic nature representing wisdom, war, and crafts, 
became known as Athena to the Greeks and Minerva to the Romans and retained the same attributes. Heru, the son of God, who is also associated with the sun, became known as Apollo to both the Greeks and the Romans. Even the very characters of the alphabet were derived from Rome and they can be traced back to Greece and ultimately from Greece to Kemet. The country that we knew as Kemet ceased to exist after it was conquered by the Greeks. In 332 BCE, foreign invaders introduced a new cultural paradigm and the nation of Egypt was born. Egypt was ruled by the Greeks until they were conquered by the Romans in 30 BCE. After the fall of the Roman Empire around 476 ACE, Egypt continued to be raped by wave after wave of foreign invaders. In 640 ACE, Egypt was conquered by a foreign army which marched under the banner of the newly created doctrine of Islam. This Arab military force was led by General Mir, who is said to have been responsible for the destruction of both the library and the university in Alexandria. Like their Greek and Roman predecessors, the Arabs benefited mightily from the accumulated wisdom of the ancient Kemites. Muslim scholars discovered the writings of Euclid, Galen, Plato, Aristotle, Ptolemy, and others, and had them translated into Arabic. By 763, the Arab scientific renaissance was well underway, and the Arab scholars were making phenomenal strides in the fields of advanced mathematics, astronomy, and medicine. By the late 18th century, the French began to view Egypt as a site of military significance because of its strategic location on the Mediterranean Sea. On July the 1st, 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte landed in Alexandria with a fleet of 328 ships, 35,000 soldiers, and an elite corps of 175 scholars, artists, scientists, mathematicians, and engineers, whose job it was to document the history of ancient Egypt. The French scoured the countryside in search of artifacts to field their museums and advance their understanding of the ancient Egyptian inhabitants of the land now called Egypt. It was during this period that I believe the face of Haramakit was disfigured by Napoleon's troops. A select group of illustrations drawn between 1698 and 1801 helped to support my thesis. Drawings of Haramakit in 1698 and 1743 show its face intact with nose and lips in place. This drawing dated 1755 shows evidence of damage done to the nose as does the illustration which was made around 1798 by the French artist Vivant Denon who was a member of Napoleon's expedition. However, by the time the French left Egypt in 1801, the face of Haramakit showed considerably more damage than before. We now see that the entire bridge of the nose, the nostrils, and the upper lip have been obliterated. While there is no written evidence linking Napoleon to this heinous act, it should be noted that the greatest damage done to the face of Haramakit 
occurred during Napoleon's occupation of Egypt. We are reminded of Napoleon's comments that history is a lie agreed upon. In 1801, the French were driven out of Egypt by the British, who had developed a strong alliance with the Turkish army, which continued to rule Egypt. By 1805, Egypt was governed by a Macedonian-born mercenary and Islamic convert named Muhammad Ali, who allowed both the British and the French to continue to plunder the treasures of Egypt. Over the course of the next few decades, thousands of artifacts were shipped from Egypt to fill the national museums of Europe. Around 1835, Muhammad Ali gave King Louis-Philippe of France a Tekken which once stood at the entrance to the Temple of Luxor. It can now be found at the Palace de la Concorde in Paris. In ancient Kemet, there were hundreds of Tekkenu which were erected as a reminder of the resurrection of the Necher Asar. Over the years, scores of Tekkenu were removed from the Nile Valley. A Tekken can be found at St. Peter's Square in the Vatican. Every Easter Sunday, as the Pope stands on his balcony to deliver his sermon on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he also stands before a 6,000-year-old symbol which represents the resurrection of Asar. There are at least a dozen Tekkenu in the city of Rome. They can also be found in London, New York, and numerous cities throughout the world. The world's tallest Tekken is in the city of Washington, D.C., and it coincidentally is called the Washington Monument. It rises to a height of 555 feet. When it was constructed in 1888, it became the tallest man-made structure on Earth thus making the Great Pyramid of Khufu the second tallest man-made structure and breaking a record which has stood for over 4,000 years. There are a host of architectural and symbolic similarities between ancient Kemet and Washington, D.C. For example, the reflection pool and the Washington Monument were both inspired by the Aperasut, or Karnak Temple in Egypt. This structure currently has two standing Tekkenu and a sacred lake which were constructed over 3,000 years ago. In 1912, the renowned architect John Russell Pope submitted a design for a proposed memorial to honor Abraham Lincoln. Pope's design, a scale model of Khufu's pyramid, was rejected by the Memorial Selection Committee for its lack of originality. A more traditional Greco-Roman style structure was built in its place. However, the sculpture of Abraham Lincoln seated within the memorial was inspired by the seated statue of Ramesses II at Abramson Bell. Other Nile Valley-inspired architectural structures can be found in cities from Memphis, Tennessee to San Francisco, California, and elsewhere throughout the United States. Even the symbol which represents the heart and soul of the United States of America the great seal of the United States was inspired by architectural and symbolic images from the Nile Valley. The great seal of the United States was designed over a six-year period from 1776 until 1782 
and three committees were commissioned by Congress to complete the final design for the seal which was to represent the heart and soul of this new nation. The front of the Great Seal shows a number of striking similarities between it and its comedic predecessor, the Seal of Heru. The eagle, the national symbol of America, looks to its right and has a cluster of 13 stars above its head, which represent the 13 unified colonies. The falcon Heru, the national symbol of Kemet, also looks to its right, and above its head is a symbol of the most important aspect of that nation, the sun. Both images are birds of prey, and they each clutch symbols of national significance in their talents. On the reverse of the Great Seal, we find a pyramid and the all-seeing eye of Heru. This pyramid is comprised of 13 courses of stone, each representing one of the 13 colonies. Are you interested in a product that relieves dry hair, skin, stretch marks, and other skin conditions such as eczema? You should definitely go to www.thealexanderbrand.com and go check out their handmade whipped shea butter. Now, this shea butter is not like any other shea butter. This shea butter is made with the raw shea butter from Africa, but also has natural ingredients such as olive oil, coconut oil, almond oil, jabobo oil, and castor oil, as well as vitamin E and mineral oil to make the product the best that it can be. If you're interested in other skincare products by the Alexander brand or even essential aromatherapy products, then go to www.thealexanderbrand.com now. In fact, if you go to www.thealexanderbrand.com now and type in the code just because discount, you will get 30% off. Again, that is the just because discount and you will get 30% off. So go to www.thealexanderbrand.com and go shop now. The eye above the pyramid represents the eye of God and his approval of the actions of America's founding fathers. To the initiated, these images are vivid reminders of the influence that the Nile Valley had on the Masonic founders of the United States of America. The symbolic significance of the eye of Heru, which represents the omnipresent eye of God, has been incorporated into the logos of two giants in the television industry, CBS and HBO. In both instances, the eye represents the omnipresent eye of the camera and its ability to see and transmit information instantaneously. Comedic images can also be found in the motion picture industry. Hollywood Pictures has combined images of Hair Market and the setting sun in their logo. Even the Oscar, which represents the highest honor awarded by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, was copied after the image of the nature Patel. Patel was the patron saint of artists and craftsmen in the comedic city of Menefer, or Memphis. The universal symbol of medicine, the caduceus, was derived from symbols associated with Jehudi, the nature who represented the medical profession. The Achut eye, or the eye of Jehudi, was modified by the Roman physician Galen in the 2nd century ACE 
and is now associated with the science of pharmacology. The Stella, a stone tablet which was used to record events of historical significance in Kemet, is now used for similar purposes. In addition to tombstones, other burial markers of Nile Valley origin can be found in cemeteries throughout the world. The widespread use of comedic imagery represents a profound psychological need within Western civilization to utilize African artifacts in activities pertaining to life and death. While the African symbols continue to be used, their African origin is seldom acknowledged. This knowledge remains one of the best kept secrets on the planet. Throughout the years, numerous attempts have been made to distort the images and contributions of Africans from the Nile Valley. Heads and noses have been purposefully knocked off statues in an attempt to camouflage their African features. The face of this representation of Amenhotep IV of 1795 BCE was reworked by the Romans almost 2,000 years later. Images of Ramesses II that were created around 1250 BCE were changed by the Greeks a thousand years later. Paintings commissioned by the National Geographic Society in 1966 portray Ramesses II as Caucasian. In 1983, Ripley's Believe It or Not presented this image of a Caucasian Ramesses battling foes who are distinctly African. The all too familiar Queen Nefertiti has also been Europeanized. The earliest images of the Berlin bust of Nefertiti show her considerably darker and with slightly fuller lips and nose. In 1990, the New York Times published this image of Queen T with the caption which read, sculpture believed to be of Queen T of Egypt who lived in the 14th century BC. Revisionist historians argue that she was descendant of black Africans. But if one were to see the complete image of Queen T, it would render the New York Times photo caption totally irrelevant. Queen T was the wife of Amenhotep III, who ruled Kemet between 1391 to 1353 BCE. And during his reign, he was the commander of the mightiest army on earth. His African origins are unquestionable, as are those of his son and successor, Amenhotep IV, and his brother and successor, the boy king, Tadankamu. If hair is any consideration of African ethnicity, then the cornrows worn by Tadankamu, or King Tut, Amenhotep III, and others indicate distinctive hairstyles which are still worn by African people throughout the world. In an attempt to settle the issue of the ethnicity of the kings and queens of ancient Kemet, Dr. Shekhanta Diop developed a test to determine the amount of melanin present in the skin of the preserved mummies. Diop's test showed a melanin level which is non-existent in the white-skinned races. Let us say that the evaluation of melanin level by microscopic examination is a laboratory method which enables us to classify the ancient Egyptians unquestionably among the black races.
Mental bondage is invisible violence. Former physical slavery has ended in the United States. Mental slavery continues to this present day. The slavery affects the minds of all people, and in one way, it is worse than physical slavery alone. That is, a person who is in mental bondage will be self-contained. Not only would that person fail to challenge the beliefs and patterns of thought which control them, he will defend and protect those beliefs and patterns of thoughts spiritually with his last dying effort. Mental slavery manifests itself in myriad ways. Adults who have been mentally enslaved will often reject the image of the man or the woman who stares back at them in the mirror. If they are wealthy enough, they will even pay a plastic surgeon to do to them what Napoleon did to Herr Maquette, that is to change their nose and their lips. This is evident in the cosmetic surgery which has been performed on entertainers such as Prince, Patti LaBelle, George Benson, Stephanie Mills, and of course, Michael Jackson. Conceptual incarceration is also evident in the mind of the child who is incapable of imagining himself in a role of cultural significance. Derogatory stereotypes of African people have clouded the mental skies of millions of people the world over. As a result of years of mental enslavement, stereotypes are now frequently perpetuated by the very people who are most harmed by them. Television is one of the most powerful mediums in the world today, and the images broadcast over the airways are extremely difficult to combat. But there are signs of change on the horizon. Within the past 15 years, there have been more information available on African people than at any point in time within the last 500 years. Numerous audio and videotape lectures are available, and there has been a phenomenal increase in the number of books written by and about people of African descent. Because of the fact of many of these new books deviate from the accepted norm, they are labeled revisionists, while the writers and readers view them as African-centered. That is, placing African history in the center of world history. The African Center movement was spearheaded by Dr. Malefe Asante, chair of the Department of African Studies at Temple University. Dr. Asante is the author of numerous works, including Afrocentricity and the Historical and Cultural Atlas of African Americans. Other scholars, such as Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, author of They Came Before Columbus, The African Presence in America, has presented evidence of Africans from the Nile Valley having visited the Americas over 2,000 years before the journey of Columbus. Publications such as the Journal of African Civilization, which is edited by Dr. Van Sertema, has featured essays examining topics such as the African presence in early Asia and Europe, over the years, scholars such as Drs. Charles Finch and Asa Hilliard and Leonard and Rosalind Jeffries, Theophil Obinga, Richard King, and others have made significant contributions to this important journal. This movement has also attracted the interests of youth such as 11-year-old Atlantis Tai Browder, who has authored a book entitled My First Trip to Africa, which details her travels to Africa. Ms. Browder now lectures to youth across the country about the book which she wrote when she was just eight years old. I'm quite proud to say that Atlantis is my daughter, 
and she has been featured on television and in numerous publications, including National Geographic World. She plans to write a series of books about her travels to other countries, and the proceeds from book sales and honorarium will be used to pay her college tuition. On the grassroots level, there are numerous organizations which sponsor conferences and lectures in various cities throughout the United States. The names of several of these organizations and speakers who have lectured with them are referenced in the publication and now valid contributions to civilization. With the growing interest in publications, lectures, and conferences now sweeping the nation, there's also been a corresponding growth in the, in the development of study groups. The growing awareness of the African contributions to civilization has led to the development of numerous community groups which are now challenging school systems. Their desire is to infuse this knowledge into the core curriculum and expose school children to knowledge which has been missing from their educational experience. As expected, advocates of this African-centered philosophy have come under attack and have been accused of fabricating history in an attempt to boost the self-esteem of black children. Opponents of this new world view believe that such a movement would lead to the disuniting of America. Such comments are not surprising because old myths die hard, particularly in the minds of people who cling so tenaciously to a lie. It has been estimated that by the year 2025, the racial minorities of America will constitute a racial majority. The growing trend toward Afrocentricity and multiculturalism is an idea whose time is long overdue. It represents a need to teach students the truth about the historical accomplishments of all people. In the words of Julius Nairi, the purpose of education is to prepare young people to live and serve the society and to transmit the knowledge, skills, values, and attitudes of the society. Wherever education fails in any of these fields, there is social unrest as people find that their education has prepared them for a future which is not open to them. If you have enjoyed our videotape presentation of Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization and that it motivates you to read the book and the study guide. I'd also like to remind you that unauthorized duplication of this videotape is a violation of at least three of the 42 admonitions of my eye. Think about it. On Judgment Day, when your soul is weighed on the scale of my eye against the feather of truth and justice, you would want to be able to say with a clear conscience, I have not stolen, I have not robbed, I have not acted deceitfully. Knowledge of history and the application of that knowledge allows one to assume total responsibility for their actions. I leave you now with words of wisdom on the importance of history from my elder and mentor, Dr. John Henry Clark.